0: Hey, I'm Tag, the chief exec of Gay Times. I've always been interested in real conversations and beyond my life at Gay Times, I want the same connections and understanding that you do. I've always been fascinated with queer people across our community who have blazed a trail in their own unique way. In music, activism, film, fashion, and more, these inspirational LGBTQ people have smashed through the gates of their industries, refusing to take no for an answer. Believe it or not, I'm not a journalist. So get ready to uncover real stories unfilter the conversation and enjoy some very unscripted moments. This isn't going to be a one-way conversation, and I might find myself in the hot seat too sometimes. This is Tag Talks. In this Gay Times original series, I'll be joined by well-known faces for one-on-one authentic conversations to learn about their unique journeys, how they created space in their respective industries and became inspirational figures. Why? Because representation matters. In a world where four out of five LGBTQ plus people, that's all of you, say you need more representation across the board in all walks of life, you may well be following in their footsteps very soon. Today, I'm joined by award winning singer songwriter Leland. With a diverse and expansive career, Leland has become known as, and absolutely is, a pop music force, especially when it comes to LGBTQ artists. He served as the co composer and executive producer of the soundtrack for Netflix's Sierra Burgess is a Loser, and maintains a role in creating the exhilarating musical numbers of RuPaul's Drag Race. As a songwriter, Leland has landed cuts with a range of artists, including Choice of Arn, Charlie XCX, Selena Gomez, Dyer, and Sabrina Carpenter. As an artist in his own right, Linus has garnered over 25 million streams and achieved top 40 success with his debut single, Mattress. Hi, Leland, How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm so happy to be here talking with you. Yeah, I'm really happy you're here. The only way that I could open this um, podcast, I knew, is by asking you the first question, which is bing, bang, bong. I'm more of a sing, sing, song, and then on weekends, I'm ding, ding, dong. UK, (laughs) hun. I'm okay. (laughs) Just about. Just fine. (laughs) I'm fine. Where did the specific inspiration for that come from? Like, is it a Big Ben moment? Like, are we thinking about, like, I don't know, I'm guessing it's, it must be about, like, clocks, right? You're the first person
1: I'm talking to, you know, who's asked me questions about this in, like, a a press, you know what I mean? Yeah. But I have written what I consider to be, you know, songs in the past that are a little more uh, intellectual and poetic lyrically, (laughs) and have never been able to discuss the, the meaning behind the songs, but now with the lyrics of UK <laughs> Hun, I'm now getting asked about the inspiration. <laughs> and um, truly the inspiration was Madness, Eurovision, and Mary Poppins, like supercalifragilisticexpialidocious, just songs that have no meaning lyrically, but create this uh, euphoric feeling. And I, I don't know if we've accomplished that with UK Han, but I just wanted it to feel right. You know, when you're writing lyrics, when I'm collaborating with people on lyrics, we always use the phrase, does that sing well? Does that feel right? Because it's like a puzzle and you know, when all the pieces are are there. So when I was coming up with the lyric for UK Han where I was sitting, you know, my table in my studio and just moving pieces around like a puzzle until the order of bing, bang, bong, sing, sang, song, ding, dang, dong felt <laughs> right. I said, okay, I'm not touching it anymore. That, that feels
0: the right amount of dumb and the right amount of easy. Yeah, love it. We will get back to UK Hun in a okay. little detail later on. But I'm excited to talk about queer songwriting in general, the music industry, your experience, kind of how you got to this place, and also writing hits to throw some names out there for people like Choice of Arn, Charlie XCX, Ava Max, creating bops for various drag queens or groups, which is very exciting. Born in the town of Ocean Springs, Leland grew up in Mississippi, a long way from the bright lights of Los Angeles the heart of Republican America, the Deep South is often known for its religious conservatism and commitment to traditional values. You could say he was more encouraged to be a fan of Christ than Christina Aguilera. I wanted to ask a bit about growing up in Mississippi. Mm -hmm. And you might not have been exposed to the LGBTQ themes that you might have in some of the cities that other people might have grown up in. How was that? And what is it like to write such LGBTQ and queer music today, having come from an experience which was potentially quite uh, religious, potentially quite conservative. Um, Talk to me a bit about your childhood and how you think it formed you into the person that you are. I mean, you absolutely nailed it. I just went home
1: to Mississippi, actually, this past week because my family has been fully Mm -hmm. vaccinated. And so I went home and I stayed in my childhood bedroom this week in South Mississippi. My parents still live in the same house that I went to middle school and high school in, you know, grew up there during those times. And and truly, all of that was one self-discovery after another, just realizing things about myself. But I would say that overall, I, I did have a really positive, creative, encouraging childhood. My parents allowed me to explore what I was passionate about. However, simultaneously, there was this secret side where I was having these thoughts that I knew I could never uh, communicate at the time and didn't feel comfortable opening up to my parents about because I, I was growing up in such a religious and conservative, but yet very, very loving household. So my limited LGBT inspiration or content came from, fully came from MTV. Uh, okay. There was a show that aired as I was in middle school and high school called Undressed. And that show was transformative for me. It was basically a soap opera about college students. And every 10th episode would be a gay episode. I would watch the show with my hand on the TV in case my one of my parents came in. And so then I would quickly change the channel. So that's, that I think in itself is a good metaphor for wow. how I yeah. grew up, um, which was absolutely suppressing a part of myself, but exploring it as well and, and wanting to understand what do these words mean, what's associated with being gay because for a long time it was just that limited intake of that show on MTV and just porn.
0: So... <laughs> so um yeah. What was like what was at stake then? So like was that because it would be deemed to be completely inappropriate just because of the topic area, or were you sort of still quite scared in yourself that you were drawn to it? Because when I was growing up, I had a inbuilt fear that I was drawn to those sorts of things, right? So part of the finger on the TV about to change the channel was also part of me not quite being able to cope with necessarily what I was taking in. So it's like that exciting yet terrified individually.
1: Yeah, you know, I knew the reaction would have been negative. Mm-hmm. And so I was fearful for what the consequences of that would be, being that I wasn't financially independent and I was living with my parents and so and under 18, so I wouldn't have been able to really defend or stand up against what would have happened. You know, my parents and I now are in a really good place and, you know, they know what I work on and, and they do as much as they can to support that in a way that they're comfortable with. But I definitely had a fear of getting caught because I knew that it would not be a positive reaction mm-hmm. and so I wanted to delay that experience as long as possible.
0: Beyond that television show in particular, did you see yourself represented in the industry that you're now in? So whether it's artists, musicians, music videos, the experiences portrayed, did you think it was impossible to see yourself in that space? Or did you see yourself being represented by people that you felt drawn to as like a teenager? Right. So, you know, I didn't even know because it's such a,
1: um, thankfully, a popular thought now, am I represented in media? Am I? Uh, do I see myself? Is, is there somewhere for me to identify? Uh, I didn't even have that thought. You know, so so that I wasn't watching TV or listening to music, thinking, "I wish I was represented here," because I, I was still <laughs> forming the thoughts of of my own self identity and still hadn't put the pieces together yet. Of oh, you can be attracted to men and also have stable relationships, or you know, have relationships like be, it's not just a sexual
0: thing. So those things were still. I hadn't cemented those thoughts yet or been told that. I was so drawn to Britney Spears. I don't think she represented me, but there was something about her defiance, the fact that she didn't really care about what people thought of her, mm-hmm. that did represent how I felt in my pre-coming out era. So like, was there anyone like that?
1: Absolutely. You know, uh, similarly for me, it was Britney Spears. So Britney Spears came to South Mississippi when she was opening up for Sync, and the entire school was going, I did not go and I was <sighs> devastated. But then years later on her Oops, I Did It Again tour, mm-hmm. she was coming and I won tickets on the radio Amazing. to see her at the Superdome in New Orleans and, um, and I was <laughs> screaming in the hallway that I won <laughs> and I ran into my parents' bedroom live on the radio holding a phone and, uh, and I said oh my god I won tickets to see Britney Spears and I'll never forget my mom going you're not gonna go see her <laughs> and my dad my dad chimes in and he goes I'll take him Virginia and, uh, and so my dad took me to the Superdome to see the Oops I Did It Again tour and it was one of the best shows I've ever seen it was seeing her at her peak and so I was full in super fan Britney Spears. I I also have a distinct memory of visiting my grandma in Indiana. And for some reason, I was left alone at the house or it was just my grandma and I for a couple hours. And I will never forget playing that album in her stereo system in the living room alone. And I would choreograph dances to every single song. (laughs) And if that alone wasn't a coming out to my parents, and I don't know if they saw it or if anyone saw me doing it, but if someone did, I'm sure there were discussions being had behind the scenes. (laughs) Um, But I do remember... Seeing the music video for Christina Aguilera is beautiful, mm. and seeing the two male characters kiss and that blew my mind. Right. Um, that was very powerful, and I, you know, it's very. Um, I'm very cautious to say like this was the first. This was the first, but for me, that was yeah. my first experience seeing something beyond MTV's Undressed that only airs at midnight. Mm. You know, seeing something on the top forty countdown on TRL on MTV in the middle of the day that was so profound for me. It was powerful for me, and it was affirming because it made me think for the first time and I've never really thought about this, but it made me think for the first time, wow, I can have that. I love that I grew up as a fan of them and listening to their music and going to the store at midnight when their albums would drop. And I fully did that. I I love pop music and I definitely think
0: it's listening to those songs shape how I write now. It goes on really nicely to kind of my question about how you can punctuate your childhood and your sort of teenage years, that pre coming out kind of identity Mm -hmm. era. Can you kind of define that in maybe three albums or three songs? Like what were those albums that really felt like they made you feel like you before you probably know quite knew who you were? Absolutely. I mean, I think it's a combination and not to like change the the question, but I think
1: it's a combination of music and movies. Mm -hmm, And I think mm -hmm. for me, like the Oops, I Did It Again album was uh, one of the pillars that I consider that make me as a songwriter and as a creative. Also the movie Mrs. Doubtfire, Mm -hmm. because now looking back as an adult, I realized that is a drag queen. Right, and in that way, drag snuck through the door of my house. I was going to say, did it, did it wash with your
0: family? Like, is oh, that something Mrs.
1: Doubtfire is one of our favorite movies ever. Amazing, as and as you say, it's it's drag. It, it is, is drag. drag. It is drag. And Uncle Frank and Aunt Jack, the characters, the the gay couple, and the montage when he shows up and says, "Can you make me a woman?" I mean, those moments. I did not realize that I was watching a drag queen transformation mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and a mass one of the best ones of all time, and that comedy heavily influenced me and. Then I would say pre-coming out, there were a couple more examples of watching my friend uh, sitting me down, my friend Jackie sitting me down when I went to go visit her in Chicago. And I was still in college and my boyfriend and I went uh, to Chicago for the first time. And she sat us down and she said, if you've never seen Hedwig and the Angry Inch by John Cameron Mitchell and Stephen Trask, you need to watch this movie right now. And that movie changed me completely. That movie was one of those revelation moments in my life. And then the other... Pillar, I would say, is a movie called The Birdcage, also with Robin Williams. But that was unapologetic drag. The comedy, it showed me what a gay club was for the first time. And it's still something I draw from for inspiration, now writing songs for drag queens.
0: Is there anything, kind of jumping a little bit on a tangent then, that isn't in the creative world, as in, I guess, music, movies, television, that also inspires what you do today in, in your creativity? I think it's learning, and I
1: think it's being... Educated by queer people that are older than me, that is something I think it's going back and exposing myself to things that I, I did not get exposed to in my childhood. So over quarantine, I went and I watched every Julie Andrews movie I could find. Mm-hmm. Uh, I watched Victor Victoria, which was so interesting, where she plays a woman doing drag as a man, doing drag as a woman. <laughs> and and I read her book. I'm so, I'm a massive fan of her from you know Mary Poppins and The Sound of Music and and so I went back and watched all of her movies, and then I went back and watched all of Barbara Streisand's movies. So for me what also influences me and, and i, I want to understand the references when i'm working with uh, the producers at drag race and thankfully they're so incredible and that's really what i pull from right now is just taking in as much as i can of yeah. things from the past that i might have missed and watching it and reading it over and over so that it it takes a long time for things to become significant influences you know uh, and it also takes a long time to rid yourself of influences i grew up listening and performing and writing christian music yes, you know and yeah. so and Christian music is always five to ten years behind in the way that it's current and fresh. It's just not. It, it sounds dated by default. But yet the music and the melodies are beautiful. However, trying to be a pop songwriter, it's not always the best influence to have. So wow. I had to retrain myself
0: and re, rewire my brain of influences over time. I was so fortunate. I came out at 15 years old and of course had various like challenges which were mostly around school. But what Mm -hmm. I did have was I managed to find odd people around the sort of UK that I knew who Mm -hmm. were older gay guys. Yes, And they would school me and I have this vivid memory me and my best childhood friend, Jacob, who's also gay, who came out at a similar time. We came to London. I think we must have been just 18, like just kind of legal to do things on our own, basically. And we went to this house in North London and the the guy was a family friend of Jacob's, um, but a gay guy, probably 15, 20 years older. And he did the same thing, or same similar thing. He sat us down and made us watch all of these Barbra Streisand (laughs) concerts. Then we watched Julie Andrews movies. And then the different ones to that were Celine Dion concerts. Mm. And he would point out the costumes, the references, the meanings, behind the lyrics and I remember thinking like I just want to go out like I just want to go and like walk around London I would not be here in your house watching the television but it was amazing because in hindsight one thing that so many friends tell me now is they think oh you've got these pop culture references that must come from your job I'm like no it wasn't it was because I kind of had this schooling of like LGBTQ references from that era and that vanguard and it was just like indoctrination but I'm so appreciative for it now it's so essential that is incredible and
1: you know we should have not not to take a, a dark turn but we should have so many more people existing right now Mm -hmm. In the generation before us, who are able to share those stories and influences, and it's incredibly sad that we don't. You know, so it makes me even more grateful for my Drag Race family of producers, who are this incredible group of people who who are a a little bit older than me and share their knowledge and are around to tell those stories. And even with my friends, I now am in that position where I'm saying, "You need to watch Hedwig and the Angry Inch. Mm -hmm. You need to watch Funny Girl. You need to watch The Sound of Music if you haven't seen it." You know, and like I said, there are still many. Movies, documentaries, things mm-hmm. that I need to watch and continue to learn about all aspects of the queer community and, and the queer past.
0: Not not just, not just <laughs> the white girls. <laughs> exactly. Leland found a writing partner in Troye Sivan, then a YouTube creator with a fast growing fan base. Little did we know, Troye would go on to define a generation of young LGBTQ plus people. Honest, authentic music that reflected the life of late teens, queer kids. It was, and still is, quite revolutionary when we consider a guy singing about male pronouns and gay experiences. The other kid behind that music was Leland. We have to talk a bit about choice of art. One thing about choice music that I know is that I know many LGBTQ plus people from different areas of the community found a lot of choice music was the first time that they felt so many topics were quite clearly laid out that they felt that they could identify with. Talk to me a bit about how you guys met and how you started collaborating to create songs which were and still are very defining for a lot of people in the community. It's strange for me to
1: hear that because I did not have that growing up. And I also still feel like I'm just getting started. So to have, to look back at what the past, you know, five or six years have been and see see people say how much it's meant to them is incredible. Troy and I met through one of my favorite people in the world, Tyler Oakley. And in the past, when I've been asked about this, I've always said, oh, Tyler and I were friends yeah. and he, you know, wanted Troy and I to meet. But then Troy said in an interview, just just flat out said, oh, well, well Brett and Tyler were dating and, uh, <laughs> you know. And so Tyler and I were dating at the time and I was playing shows in LA. This was, I, th- I want to say six or seven years ago. And Tyler said, one of my best friends has just signed a record deal. I would love for you guys to meet. I think I'd had, you know what? I'd had one big song at the time in Australia. And it just so happened to be with the people that Troy, he was living in Australia. So he actually knew the one song uh, oh, that sorry. I had out at the time. But I had been working with Ali X. We had just been introduced. And Troy was a fan of Ali." So I was playing a show in Hollywood, and it was 21 and up, but uh, my friend was managing the bar when he showed up, because he was, I think, 18 or 19. I think he was 18. And he showed up, and she said, if you have one drink, you're out of here. <laughs> and, uh, and she was, like, six inches from his face, and just the fear. He was like, I, I, I don't drink. I am not drinking. I just want to hang. And so she let him in, and that was the start of our friendship. And he and I stayed in touch over Facebook, and then on his next trip to L.A., we wrote, and I picked him up. We got Chipotle, and we met Alix. And our friend Bram at Bram Studio in Eagle Rock, and that was our first session. And that day, actually, we wrote a song which ended up becoming a song on BTS's last album called "Louder Than Bombs." Actually, but yeah, that was our first session. And when when Sean and I first started writing, and he fearlessly would just use male pronouns in songs, I didn't show it on my face, but I was terrified because I had not had those conversations with my parents. I had not been, I'd not grown up in an environment to unapologetically just say what I'm gonna say. And you know, for Troy in that moment, using male pronouns, he didn't even think twice about it. But for me, because he grew up in an environment where once he came out, he was affirmed, he was encouraged Mm -hmm. and he was celebrated. So for me, when he would potentially use male pronouns in a song as we were writing it, I was terrified. And I also thought to myself, will this get played on the radio? We didn't really have Spotify, the presence of Spotify and Apple Mm -hmm. like we do now at the time. But as a songwriter, your main source of income is radio. Mm -hmm. So I thought to myself, this will never get played on the radio. So as we were making his first album, Blue Neighborhood, it was very much a transformational journey for me to embrace what we were doing and to do it fearlessly. Because this kid who I was writing with, who knows exactly who he is and is six or seven years younger than me, he's doing it. So why, why can't I? And I also think... That's when I had opportunity and that's when I had doors open for me as an artist. And I thought to myself, fuck it. Like, okay, fuck it. Like, I'm going to sing exactly about my life and my stories. Because for a long time, when I was writing songs for myself, they weren't from experiences. I was just writing bullshit. You know, just writing (laughs) songs. Like, what do they even mean? And what are these stories? You know, I didn't sign my record, my first record deal until I turned 30. And and I think it's all in the right timing. Because Mm. at that point, I knew who I was. I knew what I wanted to sing about. And my first single, Mattress, resonated with people. And it was a real story. Yeah. You know, so uh, it was it was a scary time writing those songs with Troy because I just had this internalized homophobia of this isn't going to be successful because it's too gay. Right. And thankfully, 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 I was able to get over that and be proven wrong again
0: and again and again. And I guess it was also because you had a definition of success, which may have been things like radio plays and the system then, and actually I associate my experience with choice music most with other people in the community playing for me on like YouTube and finding it through those sorts of like digital platforms. As you said, we didn't really have the presence of Spotify and Apple music Mm -hmm. and streaming, but there was YouTube and then it turned into like touring. And that's how I think I interface more with um, choice music first, Mm -hmm. before then we went into this full blown, actually we don't need to count on the radio to play the song necessarily because we can have access to it so much more easily through streaming. It's amazing to hear about how you arrived at the music that you create now and you as a singer as well, and, and that journey because one thing you said earlier in this recording is um, you feel like you're only just getting started, which I think is something which I feel very like drawn to as well as a mm-hmm. concept. And I kind of love that because yeah. it means that you don't hold yourself back by thinking that you should be at a certain place. You know, we all have that moment where we're like, we need to achieve more, of course. but like you can keep traveling yeah. rather than thinking you should have done something six years ago, which can be a very limiting feeling. And actually that that ultimately ends in people's sorts of um, holdbacks and downfalls in a way. Yep. Absolutely. You know, I'm, I'm surrounded by some really incredible songwriters
1: my, my group of friends here in L.A., and I am so inspired by them uh, because even though they've had some of the biggest songs in the world, they're like, no, bitch, I am just getting started. <laughs> like, you haven't seen anything. And that to me, that is the feeling that I just I really hope to hold on to yeah. throughout whatever the next, you know, 10, 15, 20 years look like.
0: Los Angeles can be quite a tough city, especially for um, you know, people in creative arts and everything. I mean, I'll say for one, okay, I'm, you know, born and bred UK. There is this weird thing about LA being like you go there and then you you make your dreams real and it all happens for you because it happens in LA. And of course the reality of that is very different. Looking at your journey and the sort of like experience that you've had, how have you kept faith through the time that you've been there to today? It was quite a journey. Um, <laughs>
1: I feel like I've lived a hundred lives. <laughs> Just trying to stay living in L.A. Uh, I moved to L.A. when I was 21, and I was able to move to L.A. because two of my best friends at the time were studying there, doing the program where you can live in L.A. for a semester. So they had an extra bed in their apartment that was paid for by tuition. After I graduated, uh, I moved and was able to live with them for free, which is the only reason why I was able to move to L.A. And now I've done that for for quite a few people who have moved to L.A. and, and need a place to stay for a little bit. So I moved to L.A. when I was 21. It took me seven years to be able to pay my bills through music from that point. And there were so many, you know, I started, I catered for three solid years and I catered things like the VMAs.
0: Um, <laughs> I handed, I catered <laughs> the VMAs. How did VMAs. that feel in that moment? Just, just to ask, cause your well, <laughs> aspirations are up here. You're yeah. catering the VMAs. Like, did it feel like crappy? Were you just like, fuck this? Or did you feel like, it's good, I'm on my path. I'm gonna be sitting at the table next year. I'm not gonna be serving the table. It was a
1: bit of both. You know, I felt, I think the thoughts in my head were probably fuck my life. And also <laughs> like, This is awesome. You know? um, (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Because I grew up watching the VMAs and I I handed champagne to Britney Spears. And it was also the VMAs that Beyonce revealed she was pregnant. Uh she did Love on Top. Jesse J was in a cast sitting on a throne as the house band singer. (laughs) Uh Gaga was running around. I believe at that VMAs, unless I'm wrong, but I believe she was in drag as a guy. As a guy, Uh, yeah, she was. Yeah. Um, And so it was an interesting experience. And also, you know, I was just in charge of handing celebrities champagne in their seats. We would go down during commercial breaks. I was in my catering outfit with my apron and everything and ran into my friends who were in a band that were nominated for a VMA. They were, I've been friends with them since... Nashville since college and I, I ran into them in my catering outfit and they could not have been nicer because it could have been a humiliating experience but we all like we were friends and they like we all gave each other hugs and I said have so much fun and I'm still
0: friends with them to this day yeah and, I think it's important that people hear that because as I said there is a perception that you kind of like make it and that's how it happens there's, there's this break moment and then everything changes for you I moved to LA and I
1: said I'm here and I'm humbling myself and I will do whatever I have to do to stay living here I don't <laughs> give a fuck I I have to stay living here. So I didn't show up with a sense of entitlement, just kept my head down. And I said, because now you can, I can see it in other people, mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. I know or don't know that might be struggling or might be having a tough go at the time, uh, not having a lot of releases or having a dry spell. We all go through it, but not willing to do whatever it takes to have an income, you know, if I had to, to this day, I would go get a job at Starbucks. You know, it's so I mm-hmm. met one of my dear friends named Lisa who ran the independent artist program at a college called Musicians Institute, and she ended up truly changing my life and getting me a job teaching songwriting at this college. I remember teaching a voice lesson to someone who could not sing uh, and having a song, a top five song on the radio, but I couldn't quit my job because it takes wow. 12 to 18 months yeah. for that money to come in. So as the song is getting played, I'm yeah. not going to see that money for 12 months, you know, trying to give a voice lesson to someone who simply could not match pitch and <laughs> and, and thinking to myself, what the fuck? I, I know I don't have to do this much longer. And the song that was on the radio at the time was Hideaway by Dea. And then three months or four months later, Youth was on the radio. So I went from never having a song on top 40 radio in the US to having two at once and then did not have another one for about a year and a half. So I got used to, oh my God, I'm going to have you know, two songs on the radio all the time. Right, right. And then
0: you're hit with reality of, oh, fuck, I got to keep this going. I want to tell you about a brand new podcast coming to Gay Times. One of the most fascinating parts of my role at the company is having access to our historic archives spanning five decades. A long-running feature by the name of Media Watch critiqued and commented on the rampant homophobia and transphobia in our press. Unfortunately, that prejudice is still rife, even if a little more underhanded. So the team at Gay Times has been working hard to bring a new audio version of Media Watch to a whole new generation. Hosted by the incredible Shamir Sani, make sure you check out the new series today. The Telegraph published an article stating... The government's proposed ban on conversion therapy would criminalise Christian parents who want to stop their children seeking transgender treatment. The one from The Telegraph It's very, I'm not going to say shocking, because if you're queer, these things often become quite numb. You're just like, okay, yeah, there's someone someone else being outrageous. But yeah, it was it was a difficult read. There's this constant back and forth between religion and the LGBTQ community. And so when it comes to conversion therapy specifically, it's like there's this big focus on the Christian aspect of it. For me, it was, you know, growing up in Pakistan, it was that if you found out that your son was gay, that you would take them to the imam for help to save you from the curse, so to speak. In this piece, if you were to look at what they're saying, it's being posed as something that is very, you know, caring, when it's not in in any facet of the imagination. Going to then really, like, fresh, aspiring singer-songwriters that will look up to you and people like you in the industry and see your Wikipedia page and be like, I want to do that. Okay. What one piece of advice would you give anybody listening right now that's really practical that they can start their journey? So not the endurance, keep going. Like of what's a practical thing that they can do to take the next step? It's just forming your community, finding your crew.
1: That's it. And so, you know, when I meet people in Nashville or uh, have people message me online and say, I, I want to be a pop songwriter. I say, okay, cool. If you actually want to do it, you need to move to either London or LA. If you can move to LA, get your ass to LA and find your crew. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's with what we've been going through the past year. It is impossible to find your community. I, I'm like heartbroken for new songwriters that are in LA trying to make it or, or actors or anyone trying to do something in LA because they lost a year. And if, I, if this would have happened when I was living in LA and I was catering, I would have had to move home because mm-hmm. there are no catering events. So I would just say, if you want to be a pop songwriter, figure it out, move to LA. You know, now people can write online. I've been doing only Zoom sessions for the past year, but you still have to find your community. That's essential. I found my crew. It took me a, a few years, but then I found them and we came up together. And I, I realized I needed to stop trying to write with the biggest songwriters in LA and just write with my friends and let us become the next ones to come up. Mm-hmm. And that is exactly what happened. And I felt so much less stressed. Once I realized that, you know, one of my like dearest friends, favorite people in the world, Sarah Hudson, she's in our group. And I was teaching at Musicians Institute. And I remember hearing that she wrote Dark Horse. And I thought, Mm -hmm. you fucking bitch, you did. (laughs) But then my best friend then became one of the biggest songwriters in the world, having one of the biggest pop songs of all time and Katy Perry's biggest song, period. And when I heard that she had written that song, and then saw what the song did, because that song was never supposed to be a single. It was like a Pepsi promo single or something. And then that song took on a life of its own. Yeah, it it was a promo and it was the universe saying, Sarah, you have put in your time, you've done your work. Mm -hmm. I'm going to, in the strangest way possible, this is your time, this is your moment. And so when I heard about it, I thought to myself, she fucking did it. And I also thought to myself, please let it be my turn soon. Please, like it's got to be my turn at some point. And, uh, And I just held on to that. But yeah, that going back to your original question, find your community, Mm -hmm. find your community, move to your community because you have to just stick it out. And if you can do that with a crew, it makes it fun and you can encourage each other. And I would bring a bottle of wine to Sarah's studio that she lived in, that she lived in at the time, uh, that her and her now husband lived in. That's all they had was the studio where they would write songs all day and sleep there. And now- (laughs) And now she's a
0: billionaire. (laughs) And now she's a rich, rich girl. (laughs) Leland and I met in quite drunken circumstances. It was my birthday, a couple of years ago, on my 25th to be exact. That same week, I'd begun my leadership of gay times. To celebrate the start of the new beginning in my life, I ended up going all in, renting a nightclub under a hotel, and inviting 100 mates from all over the world. I'm still paying for it now, and I'm not kidding. Brett came as a plus one with one of my colleagues, and although there wasn't much time to talk that night, I hoped we'd become friends after the hangovers passed the next day this is a part of the, the recording where we um, play a little game called Do Ask, Do Tell. Now we're going to ask each other three no-holds-barred questions. It okay. can be anything that we want. It could be personal. could be work. could be gossipy. I mean, really anything you want. The only rule is that we have to answer, honestly. So do your worst. <laughs> I feel like I'm going to regret this. <laughs> I'm, I'm curious to see how intense our questions are compared to each other. I'm going to put it out. There. I think you, yeah, mine might be a bit light. I think mine are too. Okay, good. Okay, good. good. Okay, you, you can go first. Uh, Levan, okay. what's your first question? Well, my first very serious question
1: for you is: um, if you had to get a tattoo of my face <laughs> right now, where would you put it? <laughs> and it can be me smiling,
0: showing my my uh, porcelain veneers. <laughs> <laughs> I think that. Do you know what? I put it on my arm which is a pretty visible space inside so or outside inside. And the reason for that is I already have a tattoo on my arm, on my inner L- left arm. And I've always wanted to add that space and kind of grow it over time. <laughs> I'm okay, making now, it sound like a rash. <laughs> <laughs> now, do I have roots in it or am I like a blonde, blonde, blonde lady? <laughs> Full drag. Like actually <laughs> I mean, there's, drag. A, there's an image that I think of you in like a Britney Spears red, Oops, i did it mm. again with the with blonde hair right that yes. just exactly like that i would take that okay. image to the tattoo artist and be like please recreate this on my arm i do feel i feel like the bitch when i am in that outfit <laughs> yeah, i feel incredible okay first question for you what i want to know is rupaul's drag race of all of the rupaul's drag race queens that you have uh, worked with on the maxi challenges what's your funniest story from recording the vocals in one of those challenges with one of the queens one of the funniest
1: was this most recent season, uh, season thirteen, working with Kimora on her verse yes. because it, it became iconic. Ironically, you know, from the House of Hall, I uh, I she and I just worked and worked and worked. You know, I, I had I think fifteen to twenty minutes with each queen recording those verses, and um, and I remember her coming in and I was just like, "Oh God, we got to do this," you know, uh, and and we did it, and and she was so much fun. And uh, and took direction and wanted to do well, and if and that's really all it is. If a queen comes in wanting to do well, and and trust me, and now because I've been working with the show for so long, the queens are more apt to take my notes than maybe Mm -hmm, when they mm -hmm. didn't know who I was. And I truly, my goal, whenever whether it's on camera or off camera, whether it's the final song or the girl group challenge or whatever,
0: my goal is to make them each sound as good as possible. Are those moments genuinely the first time that you've heard the Queen do it? Or have you kind of... Absolutely. Right, you've not had like a discussion behind the scenes about what they're going to do? That's amazing. So it's genuinely the first thing that's come into their head and they're doing it. Well, not the first thing, but it's it's a genuine thing, yeah. Those are my
1: genuine reactions in real time, hearing these verses for the first time. And then the thought starts going on in my head of, okay, we have a lot to do. We have a lot of work to do. We have a lot of improvement to do and not a lot of time. Or this person has it. Now let's just have fun with it. And so it, it really varies depending on what they bring to the microphone in those first moments and dictates how the next 10 to 15 minutes are gonna go, whether they're gonna be stressful trying to find the right takes and get the right performances or whether what they brought is good. And now we just get to try different things and I right. pitch different ideas to them. Amazing, okay. Question number two for me. Uh, well, you asked me this at the very beginning, but I didn't ask you because I was saving it for now. So do you identify as more of a bing, bang bong, <laughs> a sing, sing, song or a ding, dang, dong and why?
0: I think I'm going to have to go for a sing-sang song mm-hmm. because, well, process of elimination. Okay. I don't think like I'm a ding-dang-donger. Like, I feel like mm-hmm. I need to be a little bit more like cocksure of myself to be You're a not, ding-dang-dong. I'm not that energy for <laughs> Yeah. I'm not like full. Yeah. There's, there's some sort of like uber confidence that I think you need to be like a ding-dang-donger. Yes, yes, yes. And so I'm not that. So bing bang bong I feel like is a bit more kind of like kooky, just a bit more sort of like klutzy, like, shaking my hair around like fun life of the party and like i love that but i'm also quite a serious person mm-hmm. and i think maybe sing Sang song goes as, as closely to my sort of like you know out there personality but in more of a uh, considered structured way i love that thank you for answering <laughs> <it>. <laughs> no problem i'm glad that i got that. <laughs> yeah you did my next question for you is maybe a little bit more personal but i think i think you maybe talked about this before is there somebody that you would kind of fan, come over to do a collaboration with is there like a artist above all artists that you would just die if they were like uh leland we're going to record something we're going to write something together um is there that one person yeah i could give you a whole list you know i'd love to to write for
1: janet jackson i would love to write to write with taylor swift i would love to write with adele i've written and worked with lizzo a bunch already but i would love to keep doing that and have a moment together but i think really uh my ultimate ultimate (laughs) is to write the music for a Muppet movie. Amazing. <laughs> so that that to me is that. something cinematic and something musical and something where I get to flex my drag race muscles and do a bunch of different genres. You know, I also should have said in when growing up, Muppet movies, Muppet Treasure Island, Muppet Christmas Carol. Muppet Treasure Island and
0: Christmas Carol, uh, the, one of the things that completely connects my brothers and I. I've got three brothers and we all love it. We love it. And, and so I can so see you. Yeah, I could so see you writing the music for like a Muppet movie. Yeah, that is something
1: that I, I would really love to do is to write for Miss Piggy, mm. write a song that Miss Piggy performs, write a song that Kermit <laughs> performs, whatever celebrities, uh, you know, actors are in the movie as well. But yeah, I mean, ultimately, I, I want Miss Piggy singing lyrics that I've written. <laughs> <laughs> I can see it. Let's make it happen. Okay, final question. Okay, so this one is a little more personal. Okay. But I don't know if we've ever talked about it, but it is,
0: do you want to have children? And if so, how many are we having? This is a really good question. I would love to have children. I'm really excited to have children. I have got a fantasy. <laughs> so tell I'll tell me. You what the fantasy is. I think that there's something about growing up and definitely having those sort of limiting feelings of being um, gay or within the queer community, right? So like a lot of my childhood... At school as well was definitely like you're really rubbish at this so anything from sports to having friends and being popular so i think that my imagination which i have like an, i can't stop thinking all the time so i I've like a really overly imaginative brain my imagination always had this idea of having kind of like it all and i hate that phrase so it's just so sort of like crass but but there's something that i just love about like the dark wood flooring of like a new york like loft apartment like very high up with like a really loving like husband who is calm and just like very like low maintenance in the sort of sense of like just a calming energy, which is so good for me in a relationship. And then having some of our kids running around so that I can come home and they can be like, daddy, and then I can talk to them, but then I can come home from a long day at the office. This whole like fantasy in my head has been there from like the earliest, earliest days that I can remember. I think I'm imagining um, two children. I would, would love like to have two kids. And I think that it's because I think one of my favorite things about growing up was having siblings. Two yes. kids, husband, dark wood flooring, a dog. And that would be perfect all right, let's start looking for places. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Where where are we adopting our first kids from? (laughs) Okay. My final question for you is a lot of artists, songwriters talk about kind of like a song, the unreleased song, if you like, which they never want to see the light of day because they find that they kind of go back and it's like something they wrote as a kid or they find it too cringy. Maybe it's something from your Christian music era. Do you Mm -hmm. have one of those songs? I've always been intrigued to know if there's that song that's always in your head of like, oh my God, I can't, like I, I cringe too much to even think about it. That exists in your sort of portfolio either one that came out but if it didn't come out it's so one that you have in the uh, in the drawer somewhere is like something like, like did you have like a um a kind of christian song where you talked about good old christian values that you wrote i did you know i my first
1: show that i performed in college i was such a little like bitch in college <laughs> but i was so <laughs> ambitious and tenacious i had been at the time heavily influenced by gavin DeGraw <laughs> and by alicia keys who had released her unplugged yeah. mtv album okay and that basically was my compass and i was like i am <laughs> recreating this vibe. All of my songs need to have these crazy arrangements that Alicia was doing at her MTV Unplugged. And I also, I basically just thought to myself, this is my MTV Unplugged. Okay, I, yeah. I wrote this Christian song in the middle of this set where like some of the songs were, uh, you know, maybe there was a cover and it was more sexual or, or whatever, but but my family was at the show so I felt the need to do this Christian song to just reinforce the image that I was still uh, holding on to this side of me you know my, my freshman year at college I had very two very distinct group of friends I had the more liberal, Wild Friends, and then I had the friends that like went to church and mm-hmm. were super religious and carried the ideologies of their parents, and now they were taking them on as their identity. so I had two very different groups of friends, and I played into both I, and at that time, I still identified within both so I think writing this Christian song, which I can't even remember the name of it, but it was a praise and worship song just it just sounded like alicia Key's unplugged it's just cringeworthy because I didn't believe what I was saying i didn't I didn't believe the lyrics I didn't have any intention to save people with this song it was still just a performance. <laughs> Being a little bitch on a stage with a five-piece band, which yes. I love. <laughs> Yes, yeah. So that song felt so far from who I was, but yet trying to still say, oh, there's a little bit of this left in yeah, me. Yeah, sure. You know, because my parents actually, as I went from, even me just moving for, to a different church than the one they went to and leading praise and worship at a, a different church, that was a big deal. So when I started to have the conversation about not singing or writing Christian music, that was a big deal. So I didn't fully want to you know, drop the hammer <laughs> all at once, but uh, you know, eventually it happened. So yeah, that, that definitely uh, was a song where I was like, what am I doing?
0: I love it. If there's one thing I dislike about the media sphere is that it loves to pigeonhole people. We like singers to sing, actors to act, and executives to execute. Crossing Over is seen as risky, and probably fatal. Leland is perhaps best known as a songwriter, however, what many don't know is that he has also created music for some of the queer world's most loved TV shows and movies, including the iconic RuPaul's Drag Race. One thing that I really admire about you is that you go from these like introspective lyrics, deeply personal moments, big pop smashes. They're very, very different, I think, sort of, um, you could argue, I guess, genre or, or lyric-wise. And then you go into drag race songs called Big Ben and writing for the Rock Destroyers. How do you manage to keep such a wide range of creative output in your music and songwriting? And is that important to you? It's
1: so important to diversify the types of projects that I work on is essential for me. I'm not completely fulfilled writing pop songs. Mm -hmm. I'm not completely fulfilled writing country songs. But what I found that I am completely fulfilled by is the culmination of all of it, Mm -hmm. is stepping outside of my comfort zone and writing the most ridiculous, dumb song uh, like UK Hun. And then to balance it, writing something like The Good Side with Troy and then writing something that is fun and uh, empowering like Kings and Queens for Ava. And then writing something for Rue, uh, I'm that bitch. You know, so <laughs> it really is all of these things. I love working in the comedy space so much. I'm so grateful to be seen in that space and given opportunities. I need all of it to feel like I am fully serving my purpose. So every everything is different. And and I wrote UK Hun you know, in the studio that, that we're chatting from now uh, with my co-producer and co-writer Freddie. We wrote that in like an hour and a half you know, in, in this, just because I didn't overthink it. But I, it's all about, uh, for me, I have to get into the mindset. So I have to listen, which really, this isn't groundbreaking, but like, you know, for UK Han, I just watched a bunch of Eurovision mm-hmm. performances and listened to a lot of steps and and uh, just try to get my mind in that headspace of choices, melodic choices that they yeah. would make, lyrics, uh, and it's the same thing with every song. I just, as long as I can take a second and put myself in that headspace, then I can adapt. And my career has been so much of adapting. Every season of Drag Race, every maxi challenge that is music-based, I have to adapt sometimes six, seven, eight mini songs that are all different genres at once. You know, so it it's just compartmentalizing, adapting, and continually pulling from, like,
0: catchy instincts, but having to, you know... Use it mm-hmm. differently depending on what the song or project is. With RuPaul's Drag Race, and and that as you said, it's it's beyond just a project now because you have different seasons, different territories. It's expanded so much. It's so exciting. Do you have any particular favorite moments of your experience with RuPaul's Drag Race? Are there any of the maxi challenges that like were just really amazing to work on? Or yes, one of the first big ones that I that I was brought in. One of my dear friends was doing what I did for the show prior, and he
1: did it for the first, god, ten years. So one of the first projects that we collaborated on was Bad Girls of History, and I got to. Right, the part of uh, of Marie Antoinette that was played by Detox, yeah, <laughs> and I knew Detox's strengths, and and I was so excited for her to do this role. It just felt like in that challenge, each queen was such a pro and such mm-hmm. a and such a comedian. They they all collectively killed it, mm-hmm. and uh, that was so much fun to work on and bring to life. And Alex sang on that one. My friend Emma from college sang uh, the Marie Antoinette one. It was hard and so challenging. But then watching it all come to life was one of the most fulfilling moments I've had working on that show. So that was really, really special to me. Mm -hmm. And then experiencing what's going on with United King Dolls with UK Hun right now. I wish more than anything that I could be there to experience it. But but no one is really experiencing it
0: because you can't go out and dance to it. I mean, the the thing that we're experiencing, and I'm sure anyone kind of listening to this will testify, is the number of memes that are going and circulating around, like, queer UK is just insane i've never seen anything like it for something that i've been a part of when it comes to drag race that's amazing that must
1: be a really good feeling it's just hilarious yeah and it (laughs) it's so fun this is um and this is something i i'll tell troy and I, i say it as a joke but i say just when you count me out I'll find my way back on the charts, honey. <laughs> Don't count me out. Don't count me out. And
0: he, he loves it, but it's just fun. And-, and also, I think it's great to see the people behind it because there's something also so British about that song. Like, and it's, it's a testament to how you've managed to capture the sort of like silliness of it all because it feels really our uh, kind of British humour. And that's that that- the best compliment you could possibly give because I
1: want whatever I write for that show for UK to just authentically feel... British. And it does happen because the queens, you know, bring it to life. And we've got such a great team there that give me honest feedback. So for it to do what it's doing right now is just, it's just awesome. Yeah. And I I am excited that it's, you know, making some history with those queens who deserve it. And uh, they all, you know, right now is just a really tough time. Mm-hmm. So anytime we can celebrate something like this,
0: it is I remember us having a conversation a little while back that was really meaningful to me, and it was actually about how we um, see success in each other, especially within an LGBTQ plus context. Mm -hmm. And I think one thing that I... I'm so so passionate about is that I just love to see anybody within our community no matter what they do aspiring and achieving things and I'll always support people to do that and I remember having this conversation where I was struggling a bit because I didn't feel like that was necessarily the same thing was always extended to other people and to myself and there's a sort of like competitiveness a lot of the time that there's only one space for there to be a big Mm. gay songwriter so then Mm. I need to sort of you know muscle my way into that and how do you perceive sort of competitiveness in an industry that so many people can I guess become quite competitive in and how do you see your own success being defined in your own way? You know, that is something that
1: we in our community here and, you know, and, and it's so interesting that there truly is a, a subculture of like the queer songwriting community right. here in L.A. It's right. very, it very much exists. It's alive. It's thriving. It's really beautiful and exciting to see. But you curb competitiveness by carving out your own lane. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that is something that I have had to do because it's so there's, there's always going to be someone new, mm-hmm. younger, just <laughs> as ambitious and who finds success in a significantly shorter time than you had to invest or than you found success, I have to check myself every once in a while. Mm-hmm. But I don't, because what I work on is so varied, I don't feel competitive. You know, the only time that I think these competitive moments happen are when it's pointed out by other people mm-hmm. and not even by the songwriters yeah. themselves. I agree. Um, and that is where, you know, sometimes the drama starts because that's it's like, Well, wait, I'm actually, I don't feel that way. No. And I, have a feeling the other person doesn't feel that way so why is this a thing and where is this narrative coming from that there's only room for one big gay songwriter right. that there's only you know
0: there is room for everyone yeah it happens so often and it's so sad but I think it's both a societal problem and a media problem or when people are seen to be a, a minority in any, any sort of just definition of that mm-hmm. there's only room for one of them because of course they are a small group of people therefore we have to pick out just the best well just that energy is so
1: toxic so and, toxic. and, and I've, I've had it myself so and I've seen how other people react to it mm-hmm. and it only pushes people mm-hmm. away I think mm-hmm. I had to Really come to understand that the only person I'm in competition with is myself mm-hmm, and like mm-hmm. whether or not I'm going to self-sabotage amen. the things that I want to <laughs> achieve truly. Yeah, and um, I, don't, I think too now at this point, the people that I work with in my community, they know what I do. Mm-hmm. They know what I do. They know what I'm good at. So when something, when, there's an, when there's a project or something where I am meant for that project to be a part of it, I'm called for it. Otherwise, I don't, I'm not needed. Mm-hmm. So I think that's something that's developed over mm-hmm. time. You know, when I didn't really have uh, a discography for people to go back and see what I've done. Now, they know the type of songwriter I am. They know the type of pop songs that I write, the type of country songs that I write, comedy projects that I've worked on. So now my identity as a songwriter is, is very much shaped in public. Mm-hmm. So if I'm right for the project, I'm right for the project. And that's also how I view bringing people in on projects. I only want to bring in a collaborator that I know I can make look amazing. Mm. And that's it. And that's all I want from people for me. I don't want to be brought in for things that I'm not right for, and I'm not going to bring people in when I'm in charge on things that I know they're not right for. I want it to be easy and fun and challenging, and sometimes it's hard for people to understand that or grasp that or think that I have more power than I have. I've had you know certain instances where where people's feelings are hurt because I didn't bring them in on certain projects, and uh, have to say, you know, that's not my call. Mm. You know, I'm lucky enough to be brought in on a project myself, and they don't say, hey, bring a friend. You know, it it doesn't work that way. So. Those conversations are tough to have sometimes, and I also have to have them
0: with myself. It's important to discuss, though. I I talk a lot about how people will um, come to me in different guises, right, and say, I really should be involved in this, and I think this is a good opportunity for me. And I think... Yeah, I'm happy and excited that I see that excitement in you. The best thing that you can do in that context, a lot of the time, and I'm sure it goes with you in these different projects, is I always say, "Show me who you are. Like, show me who you're about, and then I'll learn so much about you, so yeah. I can see you, as you said, being the best that you can be in this particular opportunity, this project, this yeah. collaboration we're doing, this partnership with music, and it might be with film. You, we do so many things within like a gay times context. So I I always feel like that's a great piece of not necessarily advice, but like kind of a passing thing that I know would have helped me. I spent a lot of time when I was younger being like, "But I want to be that. I want to be that," and I didn't actually spend much time doing and the showing people what I could achieve by myself. When you haven't done the work and you show up and you see what
1: others have done and you think that you deserve mm. to skip all those steps that you don't even, you didn't know them when they were going through it, mm. but you see them. And now at this point, and that is such a, such a turnoff for me mm. because I'm not going to set someone down and be like, listen, honey, you don't know what I've been through to get to this point. And I still feel like an underdog and still mm. feel like I'm constantly having to prove myself and and prove why I belong At the table. Mm -hmm. And that's actually something I'm working on therapy, but it is something that I I think never fully goes away, Mm -hmm. like feeling this desire for you to feel like you have a seat at the table. And so I just encourage people to whatever creative field or whatever field you're doing, you have to show up humble and you have to show up knowing that it's
0: going to take a second. Yes. And sometimes it's going to take seven years. Sometimes it's (laughs) going to take six months. But yeah. It's like it's the it's huge amount of work that goes into creating the foundation, mm-hmm. the grind, the serving the VMAs, the not being able to pay your rent, doing all of that all packed in. That creates the foundation. And then there's that extra bit of like, as you say, putting yourself out there into that uncomfortable zone of like, I feel like maybe this is a bit cooler than I am right now. That self-belief and that being a little yep. bit vulnerable, yep. that's when some magic can happen. And it's, it's more just about making
1: moments in artists' careers that people remember and that the artist remembers. And
0: I I have a final question, which is a little bit about your childhood again and thinking a bit about, I guess a bit about your upbringing and um, well, both where you grew up and your family, but then also how that kind of extended into later life. So what is your current relationship with spirituality um, and or faith? And how has that changed since coming out and in light of your upbringing?
1: I remember having the conscious thought when I was in those first seven years of survival mode in LA thinking, I don't have time to think about what I believe in mm-hmm. or who I'm praying to. I'm not dealing with that right now. I'm putting that on the back burner and I'm just trying to survive. And now I am more conscious and self-aware of the energy that I put out, of the energy that I want to radiate. I fully believe in manifestation um, and it's it's easier for someone, I know I know that it's easier for someone to say that when they've had these experiences, when I've had the The career so far that I've had, it's very easy for me to be like, you just got to believe and it'll happen, you know, but I, but I know that I've had clear moments, multiple moments in my life where I've written things down, focused on them, directed energy towards them,
0: and they have come to fruition, you know,
1: power of manifesting it, but also doing the work. Mm. We talked about
0: childhood. Spirituality, your whole experience coming into the uh, the gay world—that is, uh, Julie Andrews, Robin Williams, these amazing moments—and then very both decorated and happy career so far. But as you said, and as I would say, you're just getting started, which is the most exciting. It's the most exciting thing. Just getting started. Thank you so much, Leland. Of uh, course, I love you. I'm so happy to be here. Tag Talks is a Gay Times original podcast. Subscribe and listen to more episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Make sure you're following at Gay Times on all major social media platforms for the latest LGBTQ plus news culture, and entertainment. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. Finally, make sure you check out Gay Times Plus, our membership platform for everyone in our community. Remember, you can find more information at gaytimesplus.com. Tag Talks is a Gay Times original podcast hosted by me, Tag Warner. It is produced by I1 Obignan, with production by II Studios. The production assistant is Ade Damola Bajamo. Gay Times original content is delivered by GTX, the Gay Times agency.